This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Worm loves worm. These are the opening words of a children's book, which broaches the subject of gender identity and same-sex relationships. Let's be married, says Worm to Worm. Yes, answers Worm. Let's be married. As the worms plan their wedding, they're unsure who'll wear the tux and who'll wear the dress. Some Colorado preschools use materials like this as part of an anti-bias curriculum. R.B. Sinclair had some concerns when she learned the private Denver preschool her four-year-old attended read books like that. She thought her daughter was too young to understand. We want to use this as a springboard to learn more about this curriculum and to grapple with this question. As families change, what is the right age to talk to kids about gender identity and family makeup? So R.B. Sinclair is here to share her experience, and we're joined by Bethy Leonardi, a research associate at the CU School of Education and co-founder of A Queer Endeavor, which works with schools to create safer and more affirming environments for LGBT youth. And welcome to both of you. R.B., your daughter attended Montview Community Preschool and Kindergarten, and I understand in addition to books like Worm Loves Worm, her class read And Tango Makes Three, which is about two male penguins at a zoo who fall in love and the zookeeper gives them an egg to raise. And you say your daughter came home from school one day upset and it had something to do with that book. Is that right? Tell us this story. Yes. Um, I picked up my daughter from school. Uh, she was upset, agitated and, um, you know, afraid. Uh, she asked me, where is dad? And I said, well, he's at work. He actually was on a trip um, all day, all afternoon, very um, agitated and decided that and uh, informed me that he's going to leave. He's not coming back because he does not like girls anymore. And I said, what do you mean? I said, no, he does not like girls anymore. Um, and he's leaving us. He went with this other guy, Penguin, and they're having a baby. And uh, we're not going to see him, basically. Uh, it turned out that, uh, of course, I had no concept, no idea what she was talking about. Unfortunately, and I still feel really bad about it, I did not handle the situation well because I did not know what's the context. It turned out that one of the penguins, his name was the same name as her daddy. I and see. And she took it literally at four years old. She took it, of course. What do you expect from a four-year-old? Yes. And you say you didn't handle it well. What do you mean by that? Because I did not know what was what she was talking about. I never heard of the story. We did not have any parental notification or, you know, about uh, reading uh, uh, sex identity stories. Um, uh, I was preparing the food. Uh, I did not address her fears and uh, discuss, you know, different types of family with her because I had no context. Mm. Now, there are lots of things potentially that could confuse a child, you know, tying their shoelaces or learning to cross the street. Uh, Isn't that just a natural part of parenting, that kids are confused and parents clear things up? Um, The comparison, you know, tying the shoes uh, does not uh, provoke emotional fears. Uh, She was afraid. She felt her daddy doesn't like girls anymore and he's abandoning us. Um, that's a bit different, and it has lasting 
um, it had a, a strong emotional stress on her. And so what we'd like to do, as I said today, is ask questions about when is the right time to be broaching these issues and uh, who best to broach them. Is it schools, parents, both? And so I'd like to bring you into this conversation, Bethy, with your perspective on this in education. Um, I guess let's start with what anti-bias curriculum is, because these books are part of that uh, larger piece. Right. So we don't um, use a particular anti-bias curriculum. I think the work that we do is around anti-bias, um, so I can't speak directly to that um, particular curriculum. But I think what we know is that for um, the history of education. We haven't talked about diversity um, with respect to gender or sexuality. We haven't, um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the session, um, families are changing and they're not changing. We're just acknowledging that they exist. So they've always been here, um, same-sex couples. Um, so I think... But in a more affirming environments, there's no doubt that the, the, the optics change. That is what we see, what we experience as society changes, Right. Right. Yeah. Right. I. Yes. Um, and so th- this idea of, of anti-bias curriculum, it varies, as you say, from place to place, school to school, district to district. Right. What in general is its aim? Help us understand. I think to raise awareness and to um, invite students from very young ages to know what the world looks like, who exists in the world. Um, I think the mentioning of fear and not knowing and things unfamiliar, anti-bias curriculum is speaking to that and saying, okay, yeah, this is something that you might not have seen so far in your life. And um, we're going to help you understand that this exists and um, there's nothing wrong with this. This is very natural. Um, The question of how early... You know, you have students who have same-sex parents who are in preschool. So should you not talk about their families until a certain age? Should people not know? I mean, I was a teacher for a long time. Should they not know that I exist as a gay person until a certain age? I mean, this is... um, We're teaching the world around them. These are our families. These are our kids in schools. And we're saying, we acknowledge you. We affirm you and helping other kids recognize that, you know, diversity. Well, and to this notion that uh, this is not new, um, I, I want to f- reflect that a, a bit in terms of the anti-bias curriculum because uh, Linda Mars directs Montview, the school that Arby's child uh, used to attend. And Mars told us that anti-bias curriculum parallels some of the founding principles of that school dating back to the 1960s. Uh, And nor is Montview alone in this idea of anti-bias curriculum. It, like 7,200 preschool programs across the country, um, is accredited by the National Association for the Education of Young Children. And uh, this is one of the organization's standards, this anti-bias curriculum. Here's Kristen Johnson of that association. The early childhood years are the prime time to help children develop a healthy self-identity as well as to learn to respect and interact positively with people who are different from themselves. And so reading books that are inclusive of diverse characters is an essential strategy for supporting self-esteem in children who are part of these families, as well as teaching about the diversity of all families. Now, you may wonder how the state of Colorado sees this. According to the Colorado Preschool Program, state standards currently, quote, do not address gender identity roles, sexual orientation, 
In fact, there are not expectations for learning about these topics at any grade level in Colorado academic standards. Uh, but RB, I want to go back to this this notion of your your daughter's age and mm-hmm. whether you thought four was the right age, the wrong age. Uh, what's your perspective on this? Um, it is definitely the wrong age. Um, for at least I know for my child. Um, we know that there are diverse uh, families. I know that. And I know some are more, um, uh, um, you know, well-versed in, you know, sex identity issues. But my child particularly, and that goes back to the parents' right to know. I think the uh, um, my child was wrong for her and uh, she it was too early uh, one we can see the uh, I saw the reaction and the fear and the agitation she experienced uh, the second thing that also occurred was um, I know I'm the main caretaker and my child did not know did not know at t- until she went to school that school uh, the anatomy bet- the difference between uh, men or boys and girls she comes back and she draws a picture with um a penis that scared me where did she see that so this this gets to a, uh, an interesting point that i'd like to explore with you both which is the the question of teaching dynamics versus mechanics. Mm -hmm. That is, you can have two worms, um, you know, whose gender may not be clear, whose sex may not be clear, and not talk about privates, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, And you can have a conversation that is very anatomical. And it strikes me that that, too, is part of this conversation about about age. Beth, you um, help us explore that and how this relates to to the notion of anti-bias because, you know, so many of these topics are intertwined. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, for, for us, preschool is an age where we talk about the diversity of families, which is inherently talking about sexuality. Right. And we do it all the time um, when we talk about having a mom and a dad. That's sexuality, too. Um, we just don't recognize it, I think, until it's something unfamiliar like two moms. So for us, at least, we... Oh, so um, what you're saying is that you, you, you think f- for a very long time, this has actually been inherent in the curriculum uh, in, in terms of heterosexual yeah. relationships. Right. Yeah. I mean, throughout school. I mean, the the novels that you read in high school are very much about sexuality. They're just not about um, same-sex couples. Um, and there's all of a sudden this recognition or this um, what's happening in our schools and it's like this has always been happening now we're just including all families Um, so I think at the preschool age it's about that but it's also about gender and gender norms and the gender binary and teaching um, you know kids to kind of question norms and assumptions around what boys can do and what girls can do and so we support teachers to kind of disrupt um, binary thinking around gender and the sort of pink and blue rules. Those are the kind of conversations that we support our teachers to have. Um, but you would preschool. agree that there is a different approach for someone who's in preschool than in middle school right. or high school. So just yeah. just elaborate on that. With um, attention to both sexuality and gender? Is yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in terms of relationships, I mean, acknowledging that there are different families in a school, I'm sure at the preschool where your daughter um, attended, there are same-sex families. And so um, while the standards in Colorado not, might not point p- 
particularly to gender and sexual orientation. Um, teacher effectiveness legislation in Colorado says um, to be an effective teacher, you have to um, make your classroom safe for a diverse population of students. That includes gender diversity, includes sexual orientation. And so what kids should be seeing in the curriculum is that diversity represented for them to kind of um, be acknowledged. And your role at CU Boulder, in part, is to work with educators on right. some of that. Uh, we have an interesting comment from Twitter and Stephanie Barnheiser of Boulder, who says, hopefully all children are organically introduced through everyday inclusive life in every place. And RB, this makes me wonder how you see the role of the parent versus the school in this question. Well, definitely. We, I hope we all agree that parents are the nof- uh, number one reference for the child. Um, there is a program uh, that is uh, the UUA. It's called OWL, Our Whole Life Universalist um, Church, who actually deals with the issue of young kids and sexuality and identity, but it's within the framework of um of uh the parents and it's very carefully um you know geared to help the children identify also if they have um uh you know um ambiguity about uh, their sex identity um as far as um uh, the 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 in this conversation yeah. i think the number one issue should be the interest of the child and what really got within and I hope um, what really got over, uh, sidelined I guess and excuse my accent and sometimes my my uh, choice of uh, words but uh, what was sidelined uh, is the interest of the child when her first bonding experience was with her peers was interrupted within 36 hours of raising concern about uh, uh, you know or, or wanting to opt out uh, in addition, the only bilingual you, you minority... Re- you're referring to your relationship, I should say, yes. with, with the preschool. Yes. And, and I'll, I'll simply say that um, we're looking at the broader issues yes. here as opposed to the specific But that goes into the anti-bias curriculum that they claim uh, or they said they, they do, which I, I agree with the anti-bias, but it's, it, it needs to be inclusive, not exclusive. And, and th- this is an important question, Bethy, which is that there are some who will see an anti-bias curriculum and, you know, might even read Worm Loves Worm um, and say, you know, that this is my job to tell my child about. This is political. I, I don't see this um, as being nonpartisan and who may object to it. What would you tell those parents? And and what voice should they have? Well, we work mainly in the public sector. And so as a public institution, as the only compulsory institution that kids actually have to go to, I think it's school's responsibility to um, affirm all identities and differently than, um, you know, religious beliefs uh, or things that sometimes... um, prevent people from seeing why this work is important or um, some of the disagreement is based in religion. And I think there's a difference between identity and beliefs. And as a public system, we have to really acknowledge identity. And um, I also just want to mention that, you know, LGBTQ youth, even in our area, are the largest youth, um, homeless youth population. And so uh, we would love if um, 
we could situate all the learning about gender and sexual diversity in the family and with parents. We know that there are many kids who are um, raised by people who don't affirm their identities. And um, I think it's really important as a, as a public system to kind of acknowledge that not all uh, LGBTQ students are going to get care in their own homes. Do you have any questions for each other? I'm putting you on the spot, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to engage you both. I guess I just, you know, this question of um, how young is too young. I mean, that's been a question that's, you know, circulating in, in a lot of media. And I just feel like it's th- the wrong question. The question should be, we have LGBTQ kids. We have LGBT families. How do we do this right? Like, how do we teach gender and sexual diversity in a system that has long silenced gender and sexual diversity? Like, how do we get it right? Um, and so I guess my question is sort of rooted in that, you know, um, acknowledging that you do have four-year-olds with two moms. You do have four-year-olds who identify as transgender. So what what should a school space look like knowing that those are kids in the school? They're, those are their lives. That's their normal. Orby, how would you respond? Um, I... Um I think acknowledging that there are different types of families um, is uh, not exclusive of, um, or, uh, if I use the word right, of actually uh, what I'm talking about with the situation of how young is too young. Um, kids realize they're too young even to discriminate. If there are two moms or two dads, at that age, uh, they, don't, they will play with the child regardless. They, they're not going to sit there and say, oh, we have religious uh, attitude or societal. They, they still, their, their fresh brains are not yet there. Later, we impose that as adults on them. But four or five years old, they, they, they will play whatever they like. My child came up and she liked a particular uh, boy there, Jackson, because every time she handed him his toy, he said, thank you. He was so polite. And so uh, let me ask, ask you this question, Bethy, which is, why does this matter at age four? When, when as, as uh, R.B. is saying, kids don't necessarily care. I, I don't agree completely with that they don't necessarily care because yeah. I actually think that school is a place where, especially around gender and um, the different policing that goes on in terms of what boys can do and what girls can do, they start to differentiate pretty early um, around gender norms, for example. And I think the story about your daughter actually raises a very, um, kind of speaks back to that, to this point, which is that was something unfamiliar to her. And so she got scared and she, and, you know, that was a perfect opportunity for you to sit down and have a conversation about um, you know, that's not going to happen or whatever, you know, you would say as a parent, but, you know, our family is about love and your dad's not going to leave, you know, whatever it is that you decided to say. But um, I think the longer we don't say, um, we don't name the world in the, in the ways that it, it is, um, the fear just builds and builds. And so... Thanks to both of you for grappling with this, with uh, grappling with this with us. We appreciate it very much. That is uh, parent R.B. Sinclair and Bethy Leonardi. She's a research associate at CU Boulder and an initiative there called A Queer Endeavor, discussing anti-bias education. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Keep the conversation going on Twitter at Colorado Matters. You're welcome to email us news at CPR.org. And still to come, Judy Collins' love letter to composer Stephen Sondheim.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When you hear the names Judy Collins and Stephen Sondheim, chances are you think of this song. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground, you in midair. Where are the clowns? Sondheim wrote Send in the Clowns for his 1973 musical, A Little Night Music. When Collins recorded the song two years later, it became a huge hit. Judy Collins, who grew up in Denver, has been in love with Sondheim's music ever since. And on Sunday night at Betcher Concert Hall, she'll perform what she calls a love letter to him. She'll get some help from the Greeley Symphony Orchestra. A DVD of the concert will come out later this year. And if all that isn't enough, Collins has a new album out in June. It's called Silver Skies Blue, and it's a collaboration with singer Ari Hest. Nothing to do And Judy Collins, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. I want to start with Send in the Clowns, how you came to record it back in 1975. I was so lucky. It was one of those drop-dead times in a career where you think, oh, what am I going to do next? You know, uh, Diane, Diane Summers was dancing her way to the top of the charts, and I thought, I'm going to have to learn to dance or something. Donna and Summer. Donna Summer. Yeah. The, Di- the, Donna Summer, The kind exactly. of dis- disco queen. The disco queen with the cute skirts and all that, all those moves. Anyway, I was sitting in my apartment, and uh, my friend Nancy Bacall, who's a close friend, a mutual friend of my of Leonard Cohen's and mine, called me up and said, okay, I'm sending over this this record of this cast album, and I want you to play this song. I had no idea who Sondheim was. I didn't know what Little Night Music was. I'd never... I had been... You know, I'd been making... Recording Amazing Grace and Both Sides Now and uh, and Someday Soon and who knows where the time goes. Anyway, it put the, she sent it over and I put the needle on the cut and I played Send in the Clowns and I said, oh, well, this is it. And I called Hal Prince and the rest is history. And the rest is history. You just knew immediately that you wanted to record it. That's right. And at the time, you were better known, as you said, for songs like Both Sides. Now, Someday Soon and Send in the Clowns really was a a departure, I guess. In in what respect? Just that it was from a musical? It was an awfully good song. And it just, that's all it takes for me. If it's a great song and if it hits me in the right place. And after all, I'd grown up, you know, I grew up in Denver. I grew up after nine years old in Denver. My dad had this wonderful radio show, Chuck Collins Calling. So many people know about him. This was on KOA. On KOA. And he sang all the songs of Rodgers and Hart and, you know, all the classic Broadway shows that I grew up with. So his his approach was he found the great songs. My mother always said, you know, you didn't come by this talent 
on your own. You didn't invent it. Your father invented it, and then you picked it up and used it. And you were classically trained, you know, so you had a lot of exposure to other genres. I did. I was trained by the wonderful Antonia Brico, who was horrified when I became a folk singer and picked up a guitar. And uh, so Sunday night is this love letter to Sondheim. I mean, I'm having the best time with it. So I'm singing all the usual suspects, you know. I'm still here and and being alive and uh, into the woods. And, and I'm just, and they're all orchestrated so beautifully by the great Jonathan Tunick, who has done all of Sondheim's shows except one, I think. But I've just had a divine time. And I'll mix in the stories of my own life and his life and how they connected. What was I doing when he was uh, making uh, evening primrose with uh, Anthony Perkins, <laughs> mm. things like that. So it'll be a great fun. And I'll, I'll sing a couple of the things that I'm famous for, too. That you're famous for without Sondheim. But I, I want to go back to um, that first recording of Sin and the Clowns. What did Stephen Sondheim think of that version? He sent me a note saying, thank you for my first major hit. <laughs> Top Were you relieved? 10. Oh, well, I knew. You know, and the the thing was that I was at a point with, with Elektra Records where they knew, they really knew what they were doing. They'd, they'd had a number of years to... They were faithful to me, which is unusual in the music business nowadays, certainly. But they stuck with me from the start, and they were really ready. They knew how to promote this song. Mm. And it, it hit the charts, and it went up and up and up and up, and it was wonderful. Are you close with Sondheim today? I am. I'm crazy about him. You know, we, we send love notes to each other. <laughs> and uh, and I see him in New York quite often. And he's such a wonderful man. He's so gifted. He's so He's so much the center of kind of where musicals are going right now. And... And many of these songs that I'm doing, I I have a deep-felt desire to make them as well-known as Sending the Clowns. Mm. Why don't we hear another Sondheim song you've recorded, shall we? Oh, good. Pretty women, fascinating, sipping coffee, dancing, pretty women. When I have heard Sondheim interviewed, um, he is such a brilliant composer, and he's a complicated composer, too. Are his songs hard to sing or harder to sing? I have spent the last couple of years working on these songs, and this has been a great lesson for me because, no, they're not a walk in the park, even in Sunday in the Park with George. (laughs) (laughs) Although I make them now, I've been able, I hope, to make them sound easy and accessible. But the clarity is so important, and the lyrics are so important, and they must all connect together and make a whole. So that's what I've worked very hard on. Yeah, they're not not the easiest things to come about. But the glorious part is that they're they're as accessible and as durable and as brilliant as Sending the Clowns. You know, you can also be part of this 
quite extraordinary adventure because you can go to my website or to pledgemusic.com. My website's easy because it's right up there on the on the site when you check in. And then you can sign up to get an advanced DVD of this television show. This is going to be a PBS show. Yes, they're going to be filming at Betcher and yes. turning it into a DVD. They'll be yes, so be later. sure you, you come with the people you want to be seen with in the film <laughs> and wear what you want to have shown on, on the on the uh, on the shots of the audience oh, because it'll be very exciting. Don't show up with your mistress is what you're saying. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, if you wanted to be seen with your mistress, <laughs> yes, by all means. <laughs> Let's take a break and then talk about your forthcoming album. Oh, um, good. Which is a, a joint and the great Ari Hess project, uh, exactly with uh, with uh, that singer songwriter. So uh, Judy Collins is with us. She spent her formative years in Colorado and will return to the conversation. Uh, in just a moment. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with folk legend Judy Collins, who spent her formative years in uh, Colorado. Her father was uh, a very famous um, radio personality at the time. She was surrounded by music as she grew up in Denver. And uh, she's back in town this weekend to perform uh, what she calls a love letter to composer Stephen Sondheim. Uh, Let's talk also about uh, your forthcoming album. It's called Silver Skies Blue. It comes out in June, a collaboration with a singer named Ari Hest. This is a bit of the title song. As the scent of spring arrives, I will dance you So how did this album come about? I met Ari a few years ago, and he's just a brilliant songwriter and singer. And uh, we started doing some work together. He was opening for me on shows, and I learned one of his songs and sang it on the Irish show for PBS. And then I was digging around in his repertoire, and I found a song called Strangers Again, which is the name of my last album, which is the duets album with... Willie Nelson and Jackson Brown and Jimmy Buffett and and uh, Jeff Bridges, a whole bunch of singers, plus Ari. And so that has done incredibly well. And we were when we recorded Strangers Again, I told him I wanted to sing it before Diana Ross got a hold of it because it's such a good song. And then we decided that we would try writing together, which I've never really done that, writing and then putting a, an album together and singing together. Our voices match in a way that I've never actually found anybody else that matched as well. It's a lovely combination, yeah. It seems to work, and he's brilliant. You know, he's, he's um, you know, half my age, I guess, and, and a young, wonderful, up, up-and-coming singer. And it seems that you and Ari has to have chemistry. Would I, you... Yeah, we do. Uh-huh. We have a lot of fun together. We laugh together. It's surprising that we have a lot to talk about on stage. Um, he's a quiet sort of fellow. He's not a, you know, he's not um, as outrageous as I am <laughs> in a lot of ways. So we work well together, and then suddenly he surprises me always. Why don't we hear another track? Oh, good. We? Okay, this is called Slow Burn. Oh, good. Now there's a slow burn, darling. Just like they've been before. Like a sweet. And smoky song, and what I didn't know, darling. Maybe the 
Why don't you say a few words about this song, which is really kind of, you know, sexy, passionate. Yeah, it's different kind of writing, for me anyway. We all, you know, we, when we get together to write, we bring ideas and then we take them apart and put them back together and throw them around. So, so it's fun to do that because I wrote the song and then I wrote part of the song and then he came in and wrote part of it and wrote some of the answers and wrote the chorus. You know, it, it happens that way. And I kept thinking about that term. I kept hearing it in television shows. Slow burn. I've got this slow burn. And it's sort of come into the language only recently. I never heard it before. So I thought, well, let's see if we can find something. So he and I worked on that. And working as a partner with a writing partner, as I said, is very different for me. So I've had a lot of fun. And it's also very much stimulated my own songwriting. I'm now sort of off on a tear with preparing the the album that'll come two years from now oh, wow. of all my own things, you know. So you have mostly written songs kind of in isolation. I have. And, and having that um, collaboration has sparked something in you, it sounds like. It has, and you can get that album, by the way, by pre-ordering on Amazon or with your record store or Barnes & Noble. So you can pre-order Silver Skies Blue. It comes out formally on June the 3rd. But which is not so far from now, actually. But you can pre-order it. You are as much saleswoman as artist, Judy Collins. Oh, you have to. You be. have to be. You have to. Has be. that always been true? Well, I I'm not sure that I was. I think it. I think you get dragged into it when you're younger because you think, oh, I don't know if I want to go do that. But then you realize, and first of all, it's a lot of fun. Because you meet people, you talk about yourself, you talk about them, you interchange what's going on. And with other artists, too. It's great fun to do this. I don't think that we create in isolation. And remembering how important it's been to all of my work that newspapers and radio stations and record labels and people who do television shows, you know, it's it's been fundamental to making my own work public. Given the um, really kind of romantic nature of slow burn, uh, I, yeah. I thought I would ask you about how your perception of romantic love has evolved over time. Is I it, don't even know about that. I think, well, I've been, let's let's put it this way, I've had a very chaotic early experience with romance and not too successful, a very, you know, lots of brilliant moments but not very much really, although I'm still very good friends with Stephen Stills. I always have to say that. Stephen and I are good friends. But, you know, I've been involved and with and married to and living with the same man for 37 years. 38! Oh, my God! Lewis Nelson and I have been together. I always say that's really quite a record for a hippie. (laughs) (laughs) I find romance and excitement in my work, and it's just, and with my life. What would he say to that? I think he would say the same thing, Mm -hmm. I hope, because he's also an artist, and I think he feels similarly that, you know, we get inspired, we keep working, we find all kinds of different stimuli in our our lives, and we're very devoted to, to what we do. 
And I think it's so fortunate to be an artist because you keep having, you fall in love over and over again with what you're doing, with new people, with new friends. And that's the way it should be. And it doesn't have to end in a train wreck. (laughs) It also strikes me that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. And by that, I mean, you don't expect your partner to be to kind of be the sole nourisher. You get a lot from your oh, work. You get a true. lot from your art. Absolutely. And so there's a there's a balance there, it sounds like you've learned oh, to strike. Yes. And when we met, I was I was sort of the end of a long road of alcoholic drinking and chaotic relationships and really a lot of sort of disasters in the making. And, you know, this was something that was vital to my I'm sure becoming who who I wanted to become, who I might be capable of co- becoming, a relationship. When you get, we were not married until we were together for 18 years, and through that time, I was totally devoted to him, and um, you know, I have not <laughs> had to act out on things, and that's been a real gift. And so, when we got married, we were already involved with a long-term relationship. But but our but our lives are each we have we have friendships with other people we have work we have excitement and we have this long term commitment to one another and that's very romantic and that's very romantic you find the romance in that uh, so we've we've good uh, questions oh I'm I'm glad they don't feel overly no no that's um, very wonderful we've talked a bit about your background in Denver again your father had a radio show on KOA you graduated from East High School got yes. your start as a singer in Denver and Boulder's folk music scene of the 1960s I wonder if you even recognize the city you grew up in now when you come back to Denver. Oh, certainly because you always look to the mountains. Ah, those <laughs> those are somewhat timeless, aren't they? They are timeless. And then, of course, we have our, our city um, architectural things that we always relate to. And East High looks the same to me, you know. There are still some anchors. They are anchors. This is fascinating. In 1962, you spent five months at National Jewish Hospital being treated for tuberculosis. I did. And I noticed something uh, you posted somewhat recently on your Facebook page. You said you were looking for a woman you met named... Well, you don't know her name. She's a woman from Greece. And you met her at this... Athanasia Katsafados. And have you found her? No. I was told to go to the Greek Orthodox Church in in Denver, which I will do. I will do. And and she was also being treated for TB at the time? Yes. And you made a connection? Yes. Also, my roommate was was a Vietnamese woman named Pho Tuit Lan, which means white flower, I think, in Vietnamese. It was a... You know, I got I got well there. I mean, I'm very, very lucky. What do you think you'd say to her if you found her? Oh, I'm so happy that we had our time together. I was I was uh, very privileged to be a roommate of Faux Tweet Lawn. And, of course, the war was going on. It was already, you know, the advisors were there, and she was South Vietnamese. And we had a very interesting relationship. And and you, so you'd like to reconnect with both? Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've put the word out, and Good. let us know if you hear anything. I will, indeed. Thanks so much. Why don't we end with another Stephen Sondheim song you recorded called I Remember Sky. Oh, good. That's my husband's favorite.
Judy Collins performs songs by Stephen Sondheim Sunday night at Betcher Concert Hall in Denver. Her new album with Ari Heist is called Silver Skies Blue. And we'll be back with your feedback on Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Comments poured in after we told you about a new political action committee. The Can You Not PAC asks straight white men not to run for office in some of Colorado's more diverse districts to make room for women and minorities. We're pushing back against the notion that looking like a Ken doll makes you uniquely qualified. The founders of this PAC are Democratic activists Jack Teeter and Kyle Hulesman, and by far most commenters didn't take kindly to their idea including Randall Crumrine of Denver, who says he's white. If we really are dedicated to equality here, we have to realize that a person, a man or a woman, doesn't get to choose their race when they're born, but they do get to choose what they stand up for. How about educating possible candidates and reaching out to raise up diverse voices, rather than attempting to ham-handedly stifle those that are already there? That question came from Mike Croy of Denver on Facebook. He and others didn't think the story belonged on our airwaves. And Mary Schomacher, also of Denver, warned against the focus on race and gender. She said there's already a backlash underway from white men who've been demonized as everything that's wrong with this country. I can't see how this will help that. But Ruby Sinreich thinks the pack makes sense. She wrote in all the way from North Carolina and hopes the group spreads to her state, where she says, quote, white men are passing laws literally policing other people's bodies, fostering intolerance and driving our economy into the ground. Charlie Wilde, who says he's a white man from Denver, was glad to hear the piece. I think they have a very valid point about white males being overrepresented in government. And I think it's a fun way to raise consciousness about the issue. But we will give the last word on this issue to Ellen Boguki of Denver, who says she is almost 11. I just heard Jack and Kyle's segment, and I disagree. I think that if a woman wants to be governor or even president, it should be fair. You should not tell white men to not run, because then it would be like you are letting women win. Sort of like a basketball game. If the women were playing the men and the men let them win, that would not be fair. Women should win fair and square. So, Jack and Kyle, I politely disagree. Your feedback is welcome. CPR News on Facebook, at Colorado Matters on Twitter, or comment beneath articles at CPRnews.org. We air your feedback in this segment called Loud and Clear. This is also where we occasionally update you on stories we've covered, and so let's do that now. Earlier this year, we talked about a state law that allows undocumented immigrants who live and pay taxes in Colorado to get driver's licenses. The number of offices able to process those licenses has fluctuated because of funding disputes at the Capitol. Currently, there are three locations across the entire state. State Representative Jonathan Singer, a Longmont Democrat, co-sponsored a bill to bring that number to nine. But a Senate committee rejected it this week. The Senate did approve bipartisan legislation to crack down on scams plaguing the immigrant driver's license program. A mystery landed at the doorstep of Colorado Parks and Wildlife this year when thousands of fish died in the Big Thompson Canyon. Officials investigated, and as our environment reporter Grace Hood explains, the deaths revealed other issues affecting the river's health. Grace takes us to the winding canyon between Loveland and Estes Park. 
In the West, nothing quite says justice like a cowboy hat, cowboy boots, and a side piece. Meet Colorado Parks and Wildlife's Larry Rogstead. He's overseeing an investigation in the Big Thompson Canyon, where 5,600 fish died here in March. Anytime you have a fish kill, anytime you have a loss of wildlife, it uh, starts off as a criminal investigation. Rogstad says real detective work doesn't unfold like the TV show CSI. There was no clear-cut answer back when people noticed dead fish about two months ago. It took painstaking research by his team. He says the end result is a tragedy. There was a 100% die-off of fish near the site here on the tributary for the Big Thompson River. About 50% of fish died in an eight-mile stretch of the lower river. You can see concrete that's slumping out of the bottom there. A cement pour appears to be the culprit, and a berm set up by construction contractors failed to catch it. Somehow during the process at this location, there is a batch of chemical that went in the water caused a pH jump and that's what caused the tragedy. The fish kill started at this bridge replacement site on County Road 43 near Drake. American Civil Constructors was doing cement work here. Project manager Travis Madsen says crews have been in the area since 2014. The goal all along was to rework stream channels and improve the Larimer County Road, both of which were severely damaged by the floods. You know, we had done 17 other abutments prior in the same manner without issue. Madsen says the company is still investigating exactly what happened. Because we hadn't done anything different than what had been done 17 times previous. The results of the investigation and penalties are expected in the coming months. The fine could be as high as $200,000, although Rogstead says it's no longer a criminal investigation. The goal now is to recover the loss. But river watchers say the fish kill draws attention to a larger issue. Fish counts and habitat along the Big Thompson is far from restored after the 2013 floods. The Thompson River has had a lot of hard knocks lately. Will Hewitt is president of the Rocky Mountain Flycasters, a local chapter of Trout Unlimited. The conservation group was critical of the fish kill, but Hewitt understands the larger complexity and fine intricacies involved in construction work and river restoration. We can plant all the willows we want, but they won't grow any faster. The nature will let them grow. The group has worked on small projects to restore the river since the 2013 floods. But the work is about to get more complicated. The Colorado Department of Transportation has launched a three-year project to rebuild U.S. Highway 34 between Loveland and Estes Park. The idea is to make the road more resilient to floods in future decades. So that's all part of restoration. Colorado Parks and Wildlife's Larry Rogstead drives through the Big Thompson Canyon. He points to a pile of tree branches near the road. It looks like debris. Well, here's a place where we stored back trees. Rogstead says in the days and months after the floods, emergency crews removed debris, including logs, from the river. The end result was a biological desert for fish and other aquatic life. He says piles of trees throughout the canyon will eventually be added back into the river. Those tree limbs attract bugs, and bugs attract fish. Rogstead pulls up to a spot in the canyon known as the horseshoe. 
This is one of the first places that CDOT will rework. The goal is to widen the channel of the river and reroute the road. So you have an outside curve on the river there, and so when the river comes up, it just historically washes this road out totally. That work and building two bridges here won't be without its challenges. CDOT will work with dozens of partners on this project to review any wildlife and aquatic concerns. For fish, Rogstead says the laundry list of concerns includes making sure trout can move up and down the stream during construction. What happens if blasted rock falls into the stream? And what piece of heavy equipment do you use to retrieve it? Maybe it's using a long-reach excavator instead of putting a bulldozer in the creek itself. And so all those things have to be kind of thought about, discussed, and cussed, and finally negotiated out. Time is running out to determine exactly what those details are. The Colorado Department of Transportation expects work to begin later this summer. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And you can learn more about work along the Big Thompson River at CPRnews.org. That's the program today with special thanks to David Hill, Stephanie Wolf, Kara Schiff, and Matt Hers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground, you in midair. Where are the clouds? Isn't it bliss? Don't you approve? One who keeps tearing around.